Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Show today. We've got Dr. Meshi Lamy, and she's very unique within the wealth management industry. She has the, the wisdom to understand the psychology of money and wealth. She's actually a wealth psychologist and a coach, and she works with families globally that are high net worth, and she helps them to create a non financial well being across the generations. She focuses on the people aspect and the quality of their relationships rather than on the day-to-day decisions of wealth management, legacy, and estate planning. Dr. Lamy comes from a family business background, giving her a personal and professional understanding of the challenges faced by her clients. Dr. Lamy, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, you know, I think coming from a family business background, you've probably seen firsthand how, I mean, there's some people in the family that are just not comfortable talking about money problems, and that can really hurt the healthy relationships in a family. Talk to me about that. I think that that happens almost in every family that I've been working with, including my family. So in my family, um, we did, never talked about money, so it took me many, many years to have to develop healthy relationship with money myself because I had no clue about money, um, and I see it happening with my clients, especially females, when they are not expected to go into the business or they are not expected to know much about money and finances. And later on in life, when they grow and they, they develop and they want to learn, they want to know, they feel so embarrassed and they feel shamed. And when they are called to go to meetings, for example, with their financial planner or their trustees, they, they feel very uncomfortable because nobody has talked to them about money and nobody has prepared them for these conversations and they don't even know what questions to ask. So I observed that actually most in most families, money talking about money is almost a, a, a taboo, like it's like a, a bad word. And families, primarily parents, avoid talking to their children uh, about money, even about how much they have and how much they're going to inherit, uh, or preparing them for what they're about to receive the whole money, the whole psychology of money is very interesting because we are, as as people, we are not, it's not something that we grow up feeling comfortable, comfortable with. Most people don't talk about how much they earn or how much they have and how much they spend. It's, it's, it's a very touchy topic and I find it, in my work, when I'm speaking with clients, it, it takes them a long time to actually even say how much money they have. Um, so there's a lot that goes around it. Well, do you think they're embarrassed or do you think they just don't know how to say it? I think it's, they're embarrassed. 
I think mostly embarrassed because as a society, we don't talk about money. We talk about sex, but we don't talk about money. So I think the, the primary thing that I observe is that they are embarrassed. Um, and maybe because you're embarrassed, you don't know how. And you don't know what questions to ask. And you don't know what to look at. And you don't know, when you don't know that you don't know things about your relationship with money, then it, it also impacts your conversations about money. Um, well, well I know you're a coach. And do you find yourself coaching people around that conversation a lot? Yes, actually I do. Part of what I do is getting families together and help them talk about money conversations. It can be something as simple as, um, for example, if a family has a trust and the trust decides about certain things that the beneficiaries will receive, and sometimes, depending upon how this trust is structured, one person receives um, a large sum of money that it's needed for something that go- is going on in their lives, and the other beneficiaries don't. And that sometimes creates certain discomfort among the siblings, and they don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to say, I would like to have some as well. Um, so I help them and guide them how to do that in a constructive way rather than with anger. Um, sometimes among couples, when, if, in this case, a female who comes from a non-money background and she's married into money and she struggles with her own self-confidence and identity and she depends on her husband. So she, before I came along, she needed to ask permission almost for anything she wants wanted to spend and she was debilitated and he complained that she's not effective and she's not taking care of things but when it was kind of a catch uh, catch 22 or 21 I can't remember the expression because in order for her to be effective at the with things at home she needed his permission he would take his time and therefore she was not able to take care of things and then he would complain about her. So through our work, we managed to resolve that and he he gave her financial independence and now it's like the relationship has improved dramatically as a result of that. So there are many cases that um, people find it difficult to talk about money and they need someone to coach them how to approach it, what to say, to deal with the feeling that the conversation brings up inside them. So that's a learning on itself, how to, how to regulate, regulate certain emotions and feelings so you're delivering the message in an easy, comfortable way so the other person can hear what you're saying rather than get upset at what you're saying. Well, do you find this as a cultural thing? I mean, I know you work globally, or is this something that you experience all around the world? I've experienced it with all different cultures so whether it's the american the european the middle eastern um that has been my experience that it's not a cultural thing well i know that you know we when i grew up we you're right we did not talk about money and one of my boys said to me the other day 
I've never had any idea how much money you or dad make. And, and we just left it at that. But I found it interesting that at 33 years old, he's just, you know, that he just realized that. Yes, it, it is interesting, but I guess it because he, I don't know your family dynamic, but I'm, I'm using this just to suggest that in families that don't talk about money, children don't, are not even aware that they can ask the question about how much money do you earn. So it doesn't cross their mind. However, with families that I'm working with, uh, because of the work and the awareness that is created, Children at the age of 16 are involved in conversation to teach them how much money they will have, but and doing so in such a way that they don't feel entitled to the money. It's just in a way that helps them to plan their future and guiding them to do so. Um, so if it's done properly, it can be very helpful for a person to know these things. Well, you know, you make such a good point on entitlement because that's an attitude and that's, that's an attitude that does not serve me well. We all have hot buttons and when I'm dealing with someone that has an entitlement attitude, it certainly pushes my buttons. Um, so I think that knowing how to talk about money and knowing how to how to just feel good about it. Do you find most people, once they get comfortable with money, that they do feel good about it? Yes. When you feel comfortable with money, you feel good about talking um, about money. But again, when I say comfortable talking about money, it doesn't mean now that you go out in the world and just start saying how much money you have and just have conversations about money as if you're talking to your wife or your child. The, the idea is to feel comfortable talking about money in the right settings. So, you know, it, it's within context, whether it's with the family or with your spouse or with your advisors or with a coach. That helps um, when you feel comfortable at mo about money. I, I come across cases of people who have significant amounts of money and they don't feel comfortable talking about it. They don't feel comfortable about the money they have. They, especially those who inherited it, they feel it's not theirs. They don't want to sometimes to touch it. They don't. They don't want to. As if they're embarrassed that they have this money and they haven't created it. So. So that. Um, yes. Yeah, sorry. No, I mean. So that sounds like such a. You know overwhelming place to be you have all this money but you don't feel like it's yours you don't feel like you deserve it you don't feel like you really have any tie to it I mean that's anxiety producing it's true it's true and that's why uh, talking to someone and working through that is very helpful because it liberates the person and so how do you I've start cases, those conversations I mean, how do Sorry? you know when to how do you know when to start those conversations? Well, you don't start it from the get go because you have to develop trust. Um, it takes time, but 
it depends upon the case. You start with other questions, and when when the moment is right, then you introduce this conversation. It's all about the relationship that takes takes place between the professional and the client. Um, I think it's not something that you can just come from your mind or your head about. It's something also that you feel. Something that's also intuitive. Well, I have to say, you are the very first wealth psychologist I have ever met. I have worked with people on and off through all stages of my life with investing money and you know, making decisions around money, but I've never talked with anybody that has the approach that you do. Thank you. I I haven't met anyone either. I think it's something that I've developed over the years. Um, and it started with my own experience in the family business and my relationship with money and our family dynamic. And but I, I wasn't aware of that about anything back then and then when I started taking my psychology courses and um, my master's and my PhD it started actually with the BA but later on with my master's and and PhD I realized the impact that money has on people's life without their knowing (laughs) and that we all have relationship with money and nobody talks about it nobody refers to it in that language and we make decisions about money and around money that sometimes we don't even know that it's not who we truly are. It's something we inherited growing up um, from our parents and even our grandparents. And we don't even know that our relationship with money affects so many aspects of our lives from our financial decision-making, our spending and saving habits, how much we give away, how we give away, how often we do that. It affects our lifestyle desires and the choices we make. It affects the relationship we have, whether with ourselves, our spouse, our children, our friends, in the community. Um, It also can impact our way of being in the world and down to our self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-worth. So it's a very important aspect of our life And it's very important to learn about and to become aware of our relationship with money. Do you find that that women or men or either are more comfortable with with their relationship with money? It's hard for me to answer that question because I've seen men who are not comfortable and it doesn't matter what their financial success is, the level of their financial success. And I've seen women who are not comfortable, again, regardless of their level of their financial success. So I don't know if it's a gender, if there is a gender aspect here. Well, it's just curious because, you know, if we if we stereotype, which we I try not to do, But if I stereotype, I I would think, well, men would be more comfortable with it because historically they have managed it. They've been more in charge. Historically, they've been the producer of it. So it's interesting to note that there really isn't a gender factor. But that's, again, that's from my own work experience. Um, It may be if we do the statistics, 
the statistics, maybe you're absolutely right. But in my work, all I'm saying is that I've seen both both genders struggling with it. Or not, you know, it's, I've seen both. So that's why I, I, it's hard for me to answer. But I see your point, and you're probably right. We'll never know. But one thing, you know, what is there? There's all kinds of different relationships that people have with money. What's the most unusual relationship you've ever seen somebody have? Oh, okay. I actually have a few, not just one. So, someone who inherited at the age of 21 a huge amount of money. And he gave it all away and let, and went to live um, as a monk in a monastery. Wow. Um, yes. And later on, he regretted it. But at the age of 21, nobody has prepared him for that. He was shocked. He was embarrassed. He didn't know how to deal with it. Obviously, he didn't have good relationship with his parents. And that was his reaction to it. So that's one example. That I think the most extreme example. Another example is uh, of someone who also has received a large sum of money and invested all of it, hasn't touched it, and keep keeps living life on the salary that they earn, not really realizing the freedom that they have currently. They're afraid to touch the money. They're afraid to deal with it. And they just they just continue living simple lives. Now, it's not that I'm judging that. It's okay. But it's the, the emotional aspect that is determining their relationship with the amount of money they've inherited, which is the fear. Well, and you're fear reading my mind. Sorry? You're you're reading my mind. When you when you're talking about this, I'm thinking they're afraid. You know, the money came into their life and they're not real certain about that. And they're probably afraid it's gonna go out of their life. Yes. They're afraid. So but their fear is irrational. And when we talked about it and broke it down slowly, slowly, the person has started to emotionally catch up with what is really going on in their lives, in their financial lives, and has started to use that money wisely and enjoy it wisely. So they, they managed to overcome that fear. I'm sure you've seen people make a lot of mistakes about money, but that actually sounds like a mistake, you know, having the money and not using it wisely. Yes, it isn't. It's it's one of the mistakes that people make. And the opposite of that is the mistake that people spend more than they earn, which takes us to a whole conversation about people who get into debt, even if they earn several millions a year. And they still get um, into debt? Yes. Wow. Yes. I guess you can never <laughs> have too much money. 
But <laughs> yes, but the the the, the issue there was that the person, a particular person, they through situations um, in their childhood and messages they received from the father, they felt that they do not deserve the money because they come from a, a home that didn't have much and the, the father struggled, the family struggled. But they didn't want to feel that they have more than. And they thought that they don't deserve because how come I have and my family doesn't? So I shouldn't have. At the unconscious level, so the unconscious mind has created all kinds of situations for the money to be lost or be spent. Well, you know, you, you make a good point there because our subconscious mind really does dictate more of what we do than our conscious mind. A true fact, every second, the brain can take in 11 million bits of data. Research says that between 40 and 126 bits of data go into our conscious mind. And we don't have to do the math. Whether it's 40 or 126, all the rest goes into our subconscious. And, you know, we, when we think on a conscious level, we think about facts and figures. But on a subconscious level, you know, every, all the implicit memories, all the different memories that we have, all the different feelings that we felt around conversations with money. That's where they live. True. Very true. The unconscious controls us without our conscious awareness. And so and the a, key actually No sorry. please. No please. What's no, the I'm, key? I, I'm just saying that the key is to bring as much as we can things from the unconscious to the conscious mind, process it there free ourselves from the hold of the unconscious mind and create the reality that we want consciously. Well, you know, it's interesting. You said that that's something, that's a relationship that you have to build with them to really take them from, the, from point A to point B. And on the average, would you say that's a relationship that takes years to build? It varies with some people. Again, it depends upon their personality. And it can be with one family. It took a month to build strong relationship with one person and a year to build the same level of relationship with another person. So it's really down. It really depends upon the person I'm working with. But on average, it's usually fast. It's fast. It happens like within a month to a few months. Well, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned a, a client, that the 21-year-old that gave away all his money. I mean, and then that makes me think about the age of the clients because if you're working with families and the let's say the parents are in their senior years, they're in their 70s, and maybe they even have younger children in their 20s, that must make that whole money process, very complex. Um, interesting. I wouldn't say complex, just more interesting and 
just takes more time to figure out things and get the whole family and families to where they want to be. Um, but maybe, yes, complex as well. But we like so, complexity because it's challenging and interesting. It is. And, you know, and I would think some families, maybe there's, you know, five or six. Some families, maybe there's 20. And I would assume the more the the larger the family, the more interesting it would get. Yes, because there are more people involved, and like you said, it's more complex and more interesting. Yes. And when you get to larger some, families, tell me. I'm, sorry? I'm so curious. When you get to larger families, is it harder? It's harder in the sense that it takes longer to get everyone to this, uh, to be on the same page. So a lot of the work that I do is not just well psychology, it's also clinical psychology and coaching because a very important aspect of the success of money conversations and money work is the inner growth of the individual. So you know, to get them to a place that they are not, they are aware, more more aware, they are able to work on their individual challenges, um, may it be anger or alcohol or depression or anxiety or lack of communication or whatever it may be. But sometimes there is a lot of prep work that needs to take place before you can even have money conversations. Because if you start with money conversations, you're not going to succeed because the family is not ready. Like everyone is starting to act out and everyone is triggered and everyone is, is reacting. And part of the war, work is to teach them all of that, to, to, to avoid it, to not react, to speak in a constructive way. There is a lot that goes into it. Well, understanding, just on, you know, on the first half of the show, really understanding the psychology behind managing money and families has really kind of opened my eyes because there's there are things that divorce. Nobody wants to talk about the divorce. Um, there's always the elephant in the room. I just, you know, I've never thought that money would be the elephant in the room. But it just based on what you've shared with me so far, it sounds like that there are different money styles that people have and that they're, that influences everything that they do with their money or they don't do with their money. And that money style, it sounds like is a cumulative style. It's something that, you know, it started, you mentioned, starts with the grandparents, then with the parents. So it's a style that evolves over time and it probably takes time for that style to evolve the right way and it's so interesting to me because I have two boys and and they're twins and they have such a different philosophy around their money how they spend it so we're going to take a break and when we come back I'd really like to under, understand more about money styles and how they impact our decisions and how they impact the way we we treat our money We'll be back after these messages. It's words you never heard. 
just hate it when someone starts a sentence by saying, don't take this the wrong way, but... According to Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal, we all do this on occasion. Some people refer to these phrases as tee-ups. That seems fitting. What do you do with a golf ball? You tee it up and then give it a giant wallop. Tee-ups like, to tell you the truth, supposedly soften the blow. But if you are taking the trouble to announce your honesty now, maybe you've been telling too many teradiddles, flummery, and fiblets. Being on the wrong side of a tee-up can be confusing for the listener. What are other words for confusion and frustration? Wouldn't dream and jargoggle. Maybe it would be best to try to remain pricknickety. That means totally above board and precise. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. It's words you Man cannot live by bread alone. He must have his peanut butter. Peanut butter is a pate of childhood, and it's not just for kids as dogs love it too. Last night I gave my dog a pill hidden in peanut butter. What's a word for a messy concoction that helps the medicine go down? Sliver sauce. Mice apparently prefer peanut butter to cheese when it comes to luring them into the trap. But there are even more practical uses for peanut butter. Peanut butter contains natural oils, which makes it perfect for removing all kinds of sticky things, like gum stuck in your shoe or in your hair. What's a word for the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth? Arachibutephobia. And according to Barry Goldwater, if you don't mind smelling like peanut butter for two or three days, peanut butter is a darn good shaving cream. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back, and we want to learn a little bit more about the different styles that every each of us have, money styles, because... Uh, as I said before the break, I have two boys, and they, they view it differently. They treat it differently. They spend it differently. So um, there are different modalities to money styles. Uh, there's one modality that includes eight money styles. There is another one that includes nine money styles. Um, and I'm just going to refer to one modality today. Um, so each of us has different styles and there are the, the, sim- the simple model talks about um, the spender, the saver, the giver, the needy, the hustler, the unaware, and the hoarder. Now, it's important to say that although we may have one predominant style, we can at times, have more than one style that is less dominant. So it's not to say that I am the spender and nothing else. Um, It's important to say that because it gives people the opportunity to find themselves in different styles and to become aware. So would you like me to go and just give you a little bit about each of the styles and what does it mean? Absolutely. I want to diagnose my family. (laughs) (laughs) So um, the spender usually is someone who cannot wait to spend the money that they have. Um, And they tend to justify 
their spendings in ways that sounds very convincing or rational. They're usually careless with their money, reckless and frivolous with their spending. And the challenge for them is to learn to control their impulses. The saver, on the other hand, is someone who watches every penny and they take pleasure in saving. And they will spend their money, but they always choose to spend it with the less expensive option. And their lesson usually is to learn not to grow up to be penny wise and pound foolish and to learn to be generous. And they're the people who are usually are very calculated and controlling, can be controlling. The giver, on the other hand, and sometimes uh, we refer to them as the spirituals, uh, is someone who uses their money to help others. And they'll be the first one to lend money to others. They'll be the, the first ones to be left with no money. They will be the ones who are going to volunteer to work in uh, charity organizations. Um, and they won't really care much about how much they earn or make. So their challenge is actually to be able to learn that it's okay to receive and it's okay to make money and it's good to save. The needy one is the one that has a great need for having and, and getting things. So it's that person that we refer to that can develop a sense of entitlement or spoiled brat. Um, for them, they, they don't think that they need to work for their money. They think that they deserve that everything will be given to them. And their challenge is to grow up not to be entitled, or if they are entitled, to work through that and to take responsibility to making money and to saving money and to growing money. The hustler on the other end is the one that money is deal. Like he sees money as a deal. Everything is a deal for him. And he will try always to double and triple and leverage financial gifts and his financial success. Um, they are usually the ones that we see as being obsessed with money, obsessed around money, 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 money. Or it's like the whole being is about money. And the challenge for a person like that is to not lose their moral compass. The unaware one is the one that I like to refer to as the avoider. The people who avoid uh, focusing on money or refuse to focus on money or deal with money. And their philosophy is whatever may be, it's fine. I They don't also, they don't... Um, know how to be financially accountable. Um, they reject the whole idea of dealing with money. But for them, it's more from um, an attitude of probably fear of money and, and, and fear of being accountable or fear of being responsible. Um, they, they refuse to engage even in conversations about money. Like almost money is a bad word. 
Their challenge is to learn to be accountable and responsible when it comes to money and finances. And the last one, which is the hoarder, it's the one the person that stashes ca- cash, um, whether people know it or not. Usually they don't tell people how much mo- money they have, but they have a lot of cash available to them. Um, they like to make money for the sake of knowing that the money is there. And for them, watching their money grow gives them a sense of joy and pleasure and a feeling of safety. Now, they are the ones who need to learn to spend money and give it away because unlike the... Unlike the saver, if they're asked to give money to charity or to a good cause, they'll probably choose not to do so. Um, they really have difficulties spending money. It's like the, the, what, the word that is associated with that style is stagnation because they just, as if the money is, although it's growing, but it's stagnated because it's kept in a bank account or a stash of cash without it doing much or without it going back to the flow of um, the universe. So because the money is energy and and its purpose besides saving and spending, it's also giving. And they have difficulties with that. So these are the one modality of um, money styles. It's so interesting because it sounds like there's challenges with, I mean, there's not one perfect style that with, with each style that you have, you, you face challenges. Yes, of course, there is no perfect style unless you understand and develop an awareness about your money style and work through that and you reach an equilibrium. So you reach a balance. But what will happen is that the predominant money style will probably keep coming back, but you'll develop the awareness and you'll be able to overcome that and not follow it. So it's not something that you get rid of forever, although maybe with many, many years of experience, you can but the, the idea is to become aware and to find a balance in how you're dealing with money, depending upon your style. So, for example, the spender, I've learned that spenders just enjoy spending money. After they've worked through the challenge of why is it that they need to spend the money and they realize why, and they work through that, it also gives them pleasure to spend money. So they can find the balance with how they spend without depriving themselves. So their spending don't have to be as they used to be in the past and the amounts don't have to be as high as they used to be in the past, but still they need to maintain that style on a much lower degree in a healthier way. And that goes for every style. I'm just using the spender as an example because we don't want to take away from people's personalities like if, if there is something there 
that is important to them and give them a sense of joy, we don't want to kill that. We really have to find the balance of how they're going to use their style. Well, you said the nasty word, balance. You know, that's the hardest thing to find. Because I think we have we have our wants and we have our needs. And sometimes those wants and those needs are two different things. That's a very that's a very good point. And and that there is also work around around that. How do we how do we balance between our needs and our wants? And and that's something that's not easy to answer in this conversation because it requires an exploration of so many aspects of the person's life and in order to guide them in the right way on how do you reach that balance. But there are ways to do that. So that's the good news. That is the good news because it, it, it you're right. This is not the right format because it would take time and a, and a lot of energy to, to lay it out. But money, it, the more we talk about money, the more interesting it becomes to me because, you know, it's not just having enough or feeling safe or feeling secure with the amount that you have. Um, but for some of some people like to, they want to think about their legacy. And I know you do a lot of work with families around their legacy. I do. And it's, it's true that money is not just about uh, feeling safe and secure and how much money we have. Um, there are people who have reached a certain financial success and what's important for them is the legacy that they leave behind them and the work that they do in the world. What, you know, helping others. Um, a lot of my clients have foundations that they use for that purpose. Uh, helping the world um, and also not just for the community or the world they are also interested in the legacy they leave, leave behind to their children so some of the work that we do is also identifying the values that are important to the family and how they make sure that the generations to come follow it and usually it's by helping them to write a family document that states all of that and states what's expected and, and, and what's not expected, what's desired and how they would like the next generations to use their money. And, and, and that with money comes responsibility and it's not just rewards. And those responsibilities are very important, not just to the family, but to the community. Um, and the responsibility, I have families who, as a result of working together, realize the importance of personal growth, and they incorporate it into the family document that they ask of the next generation to make sure that they work on their growth and they lay out how they suggest that they do that. I mean, there is a lot that goes to it. There is a lot about money that we are not aware of. Well, well, how do you deal with somebody that 
is so emotional about it. You know, you've got the emotional brain and you've got the logical brain. And but I'm just curious, how do you how do you work with somebody that just has that emotional side of their brain working? Because in money to me, you've got to be you've got to have some logic. Yes, but some people don't. It's just that they they have such an emotional attachment to money. Again, Lee, that's a very good question. But how do you work with someone? It's um, there is no formula. It's 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 the first the initial conversation is an intake conversation, and you ask lots of questions, and and, and then you start learning about their past and about their life experiences and then you're able to identify events that have caused them to have that emotional reaction to money and you work with them and you teach them how to undo that. That's in a nutshell the process. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think about, you know, we've just been, or some of us think we're still in the pandemic. Either way, we've just been through 18, 20 months that was very traumatic on a lot of different levels for a lot of people. How have you seen that impact the way people spend their money? This is, uh, this is also a good question because um, what happens is it takes time for the brain to catch up with what's really happening, the brain and the emotion. So at the beginning, people are just going about life as and spending as if it, not, nothing has happened. And it took them time to realize that this is not going to change anytime soon. And then anxiety and panic kicked in. And then, you know, they had to rearrange their spendings and budget and look at things differently and understand that it's not as they can't do things the way they did before. And I'm also talking about um, the wealthy who had financial setbacks as a result of the pandemic, like some of my clients who own company, large companies who had to lay out thousands of employees and had to cut losses. And they also had to reorganize and rethink around how they're going to do things nowadays. So the short answer that it created a lot of anxiety and panic. And we had to deal with that. And we had to keep, the, the, the key was to help people keep calm and grounded and prepare and hope for a better future. And that's what we did. We, no, not everything was solved, but the emotional feeling was much better after that. Well, you know, you mentioned, you know, working with companies that had to lay off thousands of people. To me, that would be one of the hardest decisions to make. And, and how do you, once you make it, then it's not reversible. You can't bring them back. Or is it reversible? Well, I don't know if it's reversible because I'm not 
in their shoes, but I can only speak of my experience with clients. So it was very hard for them to do so. Some of them didn't sleep at night. Some of them needed to have sessions specifically just to deal with this. It's not an easy decision. Again, money comes with responsibilities. It's, it's not all easy and rosy. Sometimes you have to make tough decisions that you don't like. But they did right it with about. dignity and integrity and with respect. And that's, that's what's important. That is important. And I think with that dignity and respect certainly includes, you know, thinking of the impact of your decisions and thinking about how other people are going to be impacted by them and doing it in the kindest way possible. Yes. I mean, sometimes that's all that you can do. But it was hard to observe them going through the emotional impact decisions like that has left them with. Well, let's talk about some emotional decisions that that maybe are easier. Maybe they're not, but making decisions around donations. Who do you give to? Why do you give to? How do you give to? Um, you know, it's. I read about something the other day. A gentleman has donated $50 million to a business school of a university. And I know the gentleman. And I thought, well, my first thought was, wow, I didn't know he had that much money. But then my second thought was, well, maybe it's not just writing a check for $50 million. Maybe it's the way that you do it. Maybe it's $10 million a year. So, I mean, that whole decision-making process on donations, I would love to understand that a little bit more. But any specifics that you would like to understand? Because, again, that's... That's a, that's a whole book, <laughs> isn't it? How do you structure those decisions? And I mean, because it's not just, oh, you know, my favorite charity is always animals. Operation kind of, every, anything with an animal, oh, you can definitely count on me. Um, but so I just go with my heart. And there's got to be other things that you look at before you make that decision. Well, to, in order to answer this question, we need to answer it um, thinking about who is the person that is giving the money and how much money they have. Are we talking about a family who has a foundation or are we talking about an individual or are we talking about a um, middle class family? Well, let's, um, just because- say, let's just say, you know, just for our listeners in the last five minutes we have let's say it's a middle-class family because that may be who you know would would identify with that question most so uh, the first thing to to do is if you're talking about the whole family so the family needs to understand and to know their their value systems around giving is it that they give a tie which is a 10 percent that's what they believe in and according to that they will make their decision and i'll talk about that in a minute or is it just a family that doesn't think that they need to give 10% each month and they just give as they think that they wish to give? So that, that's important to identify what is it that we believe in? What is the value that we hold around giving? 
Then the second thing to do is obviously people like to give to what's close to their heart. But um, if there, there is a, I, I like to look at the, I like to go back to the Bible because sometimes guidelines, moral guidelines are very clear there and, and most people tend to like it. And if you look at the guidelines there, it says that it's very important to give to charities that are close to home and close to heart first. And it's important to pick up few and donate regularly that keep changing each time. So that, that's very important to, to know. Um, it's also important to understand that you need to do your research before you give your money away. You want it's important to make sure that your money is not just going to help the people who work in the organization to become, to have a better salaries or more salary, but they're really that they people who care and the money goes to those in need or to whoever needs that money. Um, also, it's important to, again, if you're looking to give to organizations, it's important to look at their reports and, and their spendings, what do they do with the money, so you, you are knowledgeable with how you're going, to whom you're giving your money and how it's spent. Those are the general guidelines. And again, there is more to it, but for our purpose, I think that's, that's the beginning. Well, you know, you said it a couple of times throughout our, our conversation. Having money is responsibility. And it doesn't matter whether you're just managing it or giving it away. There is a responsibility attached to it. We've got about three minutes left, and you've shared so much information with people. If people want to learn more, I know, you know, I've, I've seen some blogs on your website. If people want to learn more about you, how do they do that? The best is to look at the website, which is www.drlami.com, D-R-L-A-M-I.com. And there is a lot of information there. And there is also an email if anyone would like to get more information. Everything is there. Perfect. Well, we've got just a couple of minutes left. And is there anything that, that I didn't give you the opportunity to say or, or any takeaway, any thought that you would like to, to leave our listeners with? I think that what comes to mind is that I would like people to look at their decisions around money. And when they want to spend money, ask, why do I want to make that purchase? Why do I want to, to spend this money? What's the benefit of that? Um, to l start looking into their decisions making around money. And it can be anything from grocery shopping to purchasing a home. Um, I also would like to say that whenever you feel that there is an emotion comes up when you have to spend your money or to give your money away, just look inside and ask yourself, why, why is it that I'm feeling this way? That will open the window for you to start exploring your relationship with money. And with time, it will help you understand yourself better uh, around 
That is such well, great advice, Dr. Lamy. That is great advice to leave our, our listeners with. Thank you so much for being with us today. And that's Dr. Lamy, L-A-M-I dot com. Thank you so much. Thank you. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio,